Well, you guys are in trouble today because for the first time, there are three generations of Blonskys in the house. Many of you know my grandson. He's sitting here in the front row. But my son decided to bop in for a visit. He's from that far land away known as the north side of Chicago. Adam, stand up and turn around and wave at everybody. I promise not to use you for illustration material in this sermon. I talk enough about you at other times. So, so turn to your neighbor, will you? And tell him this sermon's a little bit about where? A little bit about what? And a little bit about how? Would you stand with me as we uh, honor the word, as we read it? And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Great Christian theologian of the past uh, once described and nicknamed the book of Romans as the cathedral of our faith. And if that is the cathedral of our faith, this verse I'm about to read is definitely at the very top of the pinnacle of that church. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 and we're going to read one other verse as well. Tell me when you're there. You're there. Paul says to the Romans, the Roman church, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now turn with me towards the end of the book. Kind of bookends today. Romans 15, verse 14. And tell me when you're there. Romans 15, 14. I myself, Paul says, am convinced, my brothers, that you yourself are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to admonish one another. Let's pray. Father, we're here to meet with you. We enjoy each other's company, but we've come to be fed from the word of God, and we pray that that happens in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the first question I want to talk on is, where are we going as a church, as freedom, where are we going? Another way we could phrase this question is, what are we trying to achieve at Freedom Church Ministries, Inc.? Well, the obvious answer is that we are all becoming and want to become spiritually mature in the imitation of Christ. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. amen. But let me tell you something. In 2001, George Barna, you, many of you know who that is, he does a lot of surveys in-depth surveys on Christians, the world, what's going on in, in our times. And he asked the question, and these were primarily Christians, but not just Christians. He asked them the simple question of, what is your purpose in life? What are you striving to become? And are you ready for this? Not one single person in the survey said that they wanted to become mature in Christ. Not one. Now, I know that's not the case here, but the question is, since that's such a simple thing for all of us to agree to, 
Why is it that very few Christians are actually mentioning this when you ask them, what is your purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? How do we affect people to want to grow into inspired, unmistakable followers of Christ? Now, in this section, I just want to mention that, uh, a little bit about the pastors here, primarily Pastor Thaddeus and myself. We are very different. We don't only look different. We're different in a lot of our approaches, our taste, meaning our appetites, what we're going for. I just want to share a few with you. Can I do that? Now, when we go to the Mexican restaurant, I'm an enchilada kind of guy. Pastor is a meat and cheese burrito guy. He's a preacher-teacher. I'm more of a teacher-preacher. When I was younger, and of course before I was married, uh, I dated a few pretty Puerto Rican girls. But I didn't marry one. And I'm sure that Pastor Thaddeus, in his youth, of course, before he was married, he might have dated a few beautiful young black ladies. But I married one. Now, amen. You can clap for that. There she is right there. I'm going to talk about you later in this sermon. Is that okay? Now, when it comes to our educating, uh, educational styles, Pastor Thaddeus is more of a motivator slash lecturer I'm more of a facilitator, inculcator. We're both, as well as all the rest of the pastors here, working very hard at being uh, orchestrators, if you will. And that's not an easy job. Sometimes it's a lot like the bumper car ride, you know, at the amusement park. We're bumping into each other. But, you, you know, when you take stones and you put them in a machine and you're rolling them around and you're rolling them around, just like all of you, what happens? They get smooth, don't they? And, and they look pretty. And they're meant to be pretty, and they do their job. Now, he, he's more of a tactical thinker. I'm more of a strategic thinker. Uh, when it comes to leadership, I'm more of a let's go person. He's more of a, a let's be careful person. Now, we both like change, but he, he's always like pulling the reins on me when we're together. But he's a more of a let's be careful person. Uh, when it comes to how we're both alike, uh, and this goes for all of our pastors here. Uh, we want to see people use their commitment to Christ as a launching pad for a lifelong commitment uh, to not only be sold out completely emotionally, spiritually, but intellectually and physically to Christ. This is what we want. This is what we're striving for. And let me tell you something. This is the fun part of our jobs and this is where we all get a big kick out, out of something. It's so much fun to ignite people's passion for God and then to just get out of the way. We just love to make a path, to get rid of all the obstacles, to, to bring people to a place where I know what I'm meant to do. I know what my purpose is. Now get out of my way, Pastor, and let me do it. And we love it. We love it. Amen? Amen. Uh, I could talk about Miss King, for instance. Now, many of you know Miss King. Stay out of her way. She knows what her purpose is. She gets it done. And a lot of the rest of you are like that as well. You just aren't as vocal as Mrs. King. Amen? 
Now, there's one thing about being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Let me make a little delineation. Pastor uh, Keith, a few months back, preached, and he tried to differentiate between a fan of Christ, right, and a follower of Christ. Do you remember that sermon? And you've got to be careful with people, even in our own midst, who are saying they're followers of Christ, because some of us, we're using the same words, but when we're saying we're a follower of Christ, we're really saying that we're a follower of Christ like we're a follower of the Chicago Cubs or the Chicago Bears. So you have to get to know each other. You have to get into the nitty-gritty of each other's lives, right? And then you start to see what's really going on. Amen? Amen. So this leads me to my second question, which is, what motivates a people to make a discipleship a lifelong journey? What is it that keeps us going? You know, I've made a lot of mistakes. I have failed. I'll be the first to admit it. I know all of you are perfect, but I'm going to admit that I've made a few mistakes, even in the ministry. But there's something that picks me up. There's something that keeps driving me. There's something that inspires me to go on and on and on. And thank God on this side that it's been about 10 years since I crossed over where I've been a Christian longer than I was a non-Christian. So God has carried me, my wife, our family a long way so far. But what is it that motivates people? What's going to motivate you to keep on going? And I think many of you are probably aware of the answer already. When you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul says very clearly, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. Uh, I read about a Muslim man recently, and he was struggling with his faith. He had been raised in the Quran all his life, but they were taught also in his family to respect Scripture, the Bible. And he was wrestling because he read both, and he was a very studious person, and he started to see discrepancies in both books. There was something that wasn't jiving one from the other. And he really wrestled with this. And he knew making a choice one way or the other would be involving some circumstances that weren't going to be good. And so he wrestled with this and wrestled with it, and he put the question to God. He had both the Bible and the Quran on his nightstand where he laid his head at night. And he asked God, God, I need to know who you are. I need to know which one of these books are meant to feed me. I need to know which one is the true book. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, in which book do you call me Father? And that was enough. That was all he needed to know the truth. Now, there's two kinds of people in the world for this uh, argument. Those that believe I'm empowered to get my life just right, they think that intrinsically they have it within them to get their lives straightened out. Are you hearing me? Then the other kind, and we meet a lot of these people, don't we, where they go, oh, if I could just get everything around me just right, if I could get everybody around me just to act right, then my life will be perfect. You know anyone like that? They're kind of saying that the empowerment for them is from outside of themselves. They kind of sometimes blame other people. I'm sorry, Stephanie. 
Did Ron tell you this sermon was just for you? You, you know that was a joke, right? You know that was a joke, right? That little line right there was not intended for you. Really. Secret joke, secret joke. Those two things, they have it uh, kind of a half-truth. There is an ability within you. There is a power in you that can accomplish things, get your life in order. And there are things around you that cause you to be affected, and uh, you like to get things around you settled. But those two views have one thing in common. There's one particular thing they can do nothing about. There's nothing in this world, the known world, that can be explained to us to help us be connected to our Father in heaven. Something from the unknown, something unseen, something from outside this world had to be injected, had to come into our world to save us. That's the kind of power the gospel is. You know, the gospel is just another word for the good news. Now, I, I want you to think about sin for this sermon in a slightly different way. We often think about ser- uh, uh, sin as badness, right? Sin is a badness. But I want you to think for the purpose of this sermon that, that sin is also, uh, and the Bible talks about this a lot, particularly the Gospels, awayness. Sin is awayness from God. If you look at the entire chapter of Luke, Luke 15, you'll see there that each story, the parable about the lost coin, the parable about the lost sheep, the parable about the prodigal son, it's all about something lost and people fretting and worrying. You know, that last parable about the prodigal son should really be about the father, amen? Because the father is the one, if you can imagine, who's home every day, maybe for years on end, worrying, thinking about his son. Where is he? What's he doing? How's he doing? What's happening? I've heard no word. And just like the parable about the coin, about the shepherd, the prodigal son comes back. And in all three parables, the emphasis is on the joy when that which is lost is found. So you see, there's an awareness to sin that when we come to the Father through Jesus Christ, All of heaven is rejoicing, the Bible tells us. Amen? I always tell people that give their life to Christ, usually on a Sunday morning here in church, if I get an opportunity to spot who it is, I go up to them and later and say, this day was created for you. This whole service was for you. For you to know the God of all creation as your now heavenly Father. Here's another way Pastor and I are different. I'm old school. I still use paper. He's up here with the iPad. When you see him do this up here with his beard, it means his iPad froze. There's something going on. There's a a YouTube video. You've got to see this. It's uh, Dennis Prager, Ravi Zacharias, and Jeff Foxworthy. It's down in Atlanta, and it's interesting because uh, Ravi Zacharias, he, he ha- is stationed down in Atlanta, but they have it somewhere else on a campus somewhere. And you can imagine Jeff Foxworthy with those two theological giants, right? But uh, anyway, uh, 
Ravi Zacharias tells his story about his ministry. They go all over the world. And, of course, they go all over the United States. He is traveling, doing lectures. Are you ready for this? 300 times out of 365 days. Now, he takes off from Thanksgiving to the end of the year. He will not do any work. So thank God for that. Amen? Uh, but on this YouTube video, he tells a story about how they go to campuses, major universities, and everywhere they go, they pack the place out. Now, this is where these people are rioting when, when some kind of uh, right-wing speaker goes there. They riot, they break windows, they won't let anyone speak. But when Ravi Zacharias and his crew go on campus, thousands, of, they pack the place. They have to extend it. There's people outside going down the sidewalk everywhere. And I won't mention the university, but it's a prominent Ivy League university. They've had uh, famous speakers, politicians, uh, artists, philosophers, kings and queens from around the country speak there. And, and the guy that runs the school, the, the chief administrator, he's not the dean, but he's sitting down with a friend of Ravi Zacharias's at a Ravi Zacharias meeting, and he's saying, I don't get this. We have all these people come here. We never fill this place. And your friend Ravi Zacharias comes here, and this place is packed. I don't get it. And many of you know Ravi Zacharias is primarily an apologetist of the word of God and of our faith. And right after that service, this friend of Ravi leans over to this campus director and he says, maybe all these students, when they leave your university, they leave with their souls empty. Folks, when I'm down, when I fail, when I get caught up in thinking about, am I accomplishing anything, and I evaluate myself, and I'm not making the grade, the thing that keeps me going is what Jesus did on the cross. It's his grace continually, day by day, not just the day I got saved, but every day, including this day. That's what keeps me going. That's what motivates me, and it better be what motivates you. Because I'll tell you what, if you're following a preacher or a pastor, if you're following someone on TV, or you're just coming here because your spouse is coming here, or you're just coming here because your parents are coming here, you better stop and think. This is an aha moment for those kind of people. Think about it. You know, the world, the world internet has Amazon Prime. Cinema has Optimus Prime. But Paul is telling us in Romans that we have the prime power of the gospel. And ain't nothing going to beat that. Not that prime. Now there's something we have to mention about the grace of the gospel. A lot of people like to frame the gospel in marshmallows and sweet cupcakes and ooh, gooey stuff and get real sentimental and, oh, Jesus loves you and, you know, pat you on the back. And we have a phrase up north because the church where I, I came from is primarily uh, Puerto Rican or, or Latina, Latino. And we go, ay, bendito, oh, you know, you know, there's a lot of that going around. But I want to tell you something, uh, and I can't say it better than Aldous Huxley said it. 
Aldous Huxley said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you mad. <laughs> There's something about the gospel when it's first presented to you. Come on now. Are you with me? It's like an axe that comes down, and it just cuts through every kind of idea that you thought was right, and I'm going to live my life this way and that way, and the gospel tells you, you know, you can go on living that way, but that ain't the truth. Jesus is the truth. That ax comes down at the crisis moment. I'm kind of glad that it came down and he met me when I needed him most. The gospel doesn't care about our feelings or our illusions regarding life. There's a harshness to the gospel as well as that sweet side. I think sometimes that's why we call it bittersweet. How many of you here, when you came to Christ, it offended some of your own family members? It created a division. See, the gospel, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, that's not the entire gospel, but that's definitely part of it. Now, I want to mention something before we go on to this last point. You know, Soren Kierkegaard said to be a professor of theology is to have crucified Christ. Another theologian by the name of Overbeck said, and these guys are theologians, he says he believed theologians to be the blockheads of human society. <laughs> now, there's some truth to that. Uh, Pastor Greg, Pastor Donna, Pastor Keith, as well as myself, we all know that theology books can be as dry as dust. Sometimes reading a book that a guy wrote about theology is like being in a room alone with a dog having a bad dream. It's ridiculous. Some theologians, they open their mouth and nothing but dust comes out. It's ridiculous. Now here's why those two theologians said this. Because when we take the Word of God, the living Word of God, we like to systematize it, put it all in nice, neat boxes, because we want to assimilate it properly into everybody's life. But just a month or so ago, Pastor Greg said, you know, that's not how life is. Pastor Greg said, life is messy. How many of you can attest to that? Life is messy. And here's the problem when men, mankind, gets a hold of the Word of God and they study it and they try to dissect it and put it all back together, it no longer is the Word of God, it becomes the Word of man. And that's the last thing we want to have happen. Am I on point, Pastor Greg? So let me get to the third point. How do we get to where we are going? Where we are trying to go is turn people on to be passionate about being imitators of Christ. This is what we're striving for around here. So how do we get to where we're going? How do we help one another achieve Christ-likeness? Now, I love this little verse because most verses in the Bible, you've got to be careful because you can take them out of context. And we who are Pentecostal know all about taking Scripture out of context. Amen? But this one is nice and tight. The only way you could take it out of context is if you cut it apart. But it stands pretty strong by itself. 
It says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to admonish one another. I want to talk to you about this word, admonish. This word in New Testament Greek is actually nutheteo. It's a verb. It's an action word. Uh, the noun is nuthesis. And there is no one English word that best defines this. So in your Bible, whenever it's transliterated, it's either uh, tra changed into admonish, to warn, or to instruct, or another word for instruct, to teach. Now, I think most of you who are Bible readers here know that a lot of the New Testament is polemic in nature, meaning it is always correcting. It has a correcting aspect to it. And you'll hear a lot of people go over this argument. Can people really change? You ever hear that question? Can people really change? We talk primarily about that often about our prison system and people who have done bad things. And can they be rehabilitated? We know prison doesn't do a very good job of that. But overall in society, can people change? Well, thank God the answer is yes. Because look at all of us. Look at Paul himself who was once Saul. Amen? There's something about the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit can change us. But the Holy Spirit has his way of practically getting us to change. And you'll find one of those ways right here in this verse. Now, the New Testament, as well as the entire Bible, is full of roadmaps of life. And this is just one particular roadmap. And it says here in this verse, Paul says, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. And I'm confident that you all, full of goodness, complete in knowledge, are able to admonish who? One another. Is that the pastors who admonish? Is that just the leaders who admonish? Let me tell you something. When you get the word from this pulpit, I don't want to bust any bubbles, but this is the milk of the word. The meat of the word is when you take it in and you apply it to your life and you help someone else apply the word to their life. That's what Christianity is all about. If you just get fed from this pulpit, you've just done what a lot of people criticize the church about. You've turned Christianity into Christendom. And we who are leaders in the church are always trying to fight this thing called Christendom. We want it to remain Christianity. The Bible wasn't written just for scholars and theologians and academics. This verse tells us right away that we're to admonish one another. You ever wonder why God commissioned the construction of the temple, but it wasn't his idea to build a temple? You ever ask yourself that? You know, it wasn't God who came up with the idea of a temple. It was man. It was David. David said, oh, I got a great idea. How many of you come up with great ideas? Good intentions. He goes, I live in a great house. How many of you live in a great house? By the way, when we move, if, it, if the closing doesn't go right, coach, I'm moving in with you. Just to look out the window at that grass. He does have the best grass. 
I'm talking about lawns. Come on now. Yeah, be careful. But God commissioned the erection of the tabernacle, and he said, I'll dwell with you in the place that I design. Doesn't the Bible tell us that the earth is his footstool? How dare we think that we can encapsulate God into a building? It was never intended to be that. Folks, you are the eschatological temple today. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. We're not only in Christ, but Christ is in all of us. Now, I just want to end briefly with this, and uh, Pastor Joey, come on up. Yeah, you. He's back there like this. He's our... Oh, somebody called my name? So I want to end with two little things. Number one, quickly. Newthetic counseling, which we are all to do with one another, consists of just at least three basic elements. Now, whenever you see this word admonish or instruct or warn in the New Testament, it means that somebody in their thinking needs to be straightened out. Do you ever notice how people have perceptions about life, politics, uh, how to fix their house, how to live as a husband or a wife? They defend their way of looking at things. They not only have maybe a faulty perception, but they defend their perception. So the first thing is it implies there's a problem. The second thing, element is that the problems are solved verbally. We're not to smack each other, punch each other, do something weird, uh, flatten your neighbor's tires. We don't do that stuff, right? Come on now. It's to be solved verbally. And thirdly, the thought is always that verbal correction is intended to benefit the person who has the blockage. It's not intended to benefit the one who's doing the talking. Now, I want you to look at this verse quickly. I want you to brand it in your brain. There's a beautiful symmetry, a balance. It's even poetic. Some of you are real good at admonishing other people. It comes to you like a swimming comes to a duck. But others of you, you're a little bit harsh. You got all the answers. You see, it says, with all knowledge. You think you know it all, but you don't balance it out with goodness. You see where I'm going with this? Some of you are real timid. You would never think to go up to somebody and say, you know, I heard what you said, and I just want to talk to you a minute as sister to sister or brother to brother. And we got to be careful that our goodness, we're not being overly sympathetic. Just like with all our puffed up knowledge, we're not too harsh. Amen? Are you with me on this? Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. There's that word again. With what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Now, I've had a lot of people correct me over my lifetime. Uh, 
I have a very loving wife who, when we're at home, it's rare, but it happens all the time. She corrects me. I can't remember the last time it happened yesterday. Uh, but we've been living together now for over 35 years. And, and we're like brother and sister. When, when we're acting as, thank you, thank you. I know it was hard work on my part, but thank you, thank you. We've been rubbing up against each other real close for over 35 years. And there are aspects of our life where we're not just husband and wife, we're co-laborers in the kingdom. And so we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And to get to a place where you're confident with acting out this verse, applying it to your life, we've got to live with each other. We've got to rub elbows. Now, I know we have challenges here because we don't have our own building. But I see all of you. You're just dying to fellowship because we can't get you to sit down. We can't get you to sit down at the beginning of the service. We can't get you to sit down at the middle of the service. And we can't get you to leave after the service. So I know you're hungering for good fellowship, but folks, the way the Holy Spirit changes us is if we get this verse down, get it down deep in us, and in our fellowship, operate in it. Amen? Thanks for your time.